You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Take your Bibles, and we'll take our Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and... uh, look at uh, the book of James again. We've been in a series on Sunday nights when we haven't had disruptions, of course, um, in the book of James. And in some ways, uh, this is going to be a follow-up to the message a couple weeks ago. So James chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse 12. Go down through verse 18 is where we're going to be today, uh, tonight. Begin reading in verse number 12 through verse 18. So, It says in James 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The last time we were in James chapter 1, I called it the truth about temptation. And really it was a simple look at the problem with sin and the process of sin. And we'll be doing some review on that tonight because it really leads into this message tonight. Because tonight's message, if you are going to sum up what we're talking about... I think you could say tonight's message is the solution for sin. So you've got the problem of sin, you've got the process of sin, and then you really have a mindset that can be the solution for sin. And I'm going to give you the main idea as the title, which I don't always, because sometimes it's good to leave it a mystery, Um, but really the title tonight is this, God's gifts are good enough for me. God's gifts are good enough for me. Temptation is not going away anytime soon. And the best ammunition in our fight against sin is not willpower, it's not resolve, it's not technique, it's not distraction. Our best ammunition against sin is the goodness of God. And I want to see how those two things are connected tonight. But first let's pray and ask God to bless our reading and our time together. Father, we thank you for this truth. I, I thank you for the way it's already dealt with me, and Lord, how easy it is for me to forget your goodness in the fight against sin. I pray that you'd help us all to have open hearts and open minds to hear this truth tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In James chapter 1, verse 16, he said, Do not err, my beloved brethren. And I do think that that's kind of the linchpin of this thought unit here is that there were wrong assumptions being made about sin by James's readers. Uh, the outward tests that put 
pressure on us. These things that come from without, that, that test our faith, they are intended to grow us and mature us. And God does have a hand in those. And we don't know to what extent he allows them, but, but he does allow them to come our way. And he, he does at times have a hand in outward testing. And, and outward testing is when you deal with things from the outside, things that, that you don't have control of. Uh, for instance, if you think, I don't, I don't have a lot of outward testing, then, then I, would just, I would just ask you to fly on American Airlines. Because the, our last two trips have been full of adventure. And this was no different. This last week we were supposed to fly out on Thursday and be back into Omaha late because that was just a cheaper ticket and our whole family was flying. And, and so we got a ticket into Omaha and, and uh, we were supposed to fly out, get in around 11, then we we're just going to drive home Thursday night and get in early Friday morning. Well, on Friday morning my wife and I were awoken by our cell phones giving us an alert saying that your flight to Dallas has been canceled. And so you know, we knew that there, that was a possibility because of weather. There was bad weather. They had, they had an ice storm. They had snowstorms in Dallas on top of that. And so they canceled our flight Thursday. So we rescheduled for the same flight on Friday. Easy enough. You'd think things would be cleared up in Dallas. Um, but, but if you've ever flown through Dallas and you know, then you know it doesn't take much for them to change everything on you. And so uh, we got an alert. We were actually in the, in the Suburban with the, Brother Pyle was taking us to the airport. We were on our way to the airport on Friday when we got the second alert saying that your flight today has been canceled. Now, they, but as if it was a positive, you know, the first flight wasn't canceled. The flight from Boise to Dallas was still on. It's just the flight from Dallas to Omaha, that was the one that got canceled. And so um, we started doing some exploring and uh, we thought, well, maybe we could fly to Dallas. Maybe there'd be a connection from Dallas that we could get on at some point only to find out that basically everything on Friday out of Dallas and everything on Saturday out of Dallas was either completely full or had already been canceled. So we would get to Dallas and likely not have a hotel room because everyone else is in the same position and not be able to fly out of Dallas and get where we needed to go. And so uh, we were able to work some things out. Uh, me and three of the kids were able to fly back Friday morning on a different airline. And Aaron and Caitlin stayed behind. Um, but, they, but, you know, it just was a snowball. Like literally, I guess. But we, we get in security in, in line. You know, Brother Pyle said, you know, security here is really easy. It's never long. We get to the security line. It's miles long. Um, so, okay, Jason and I went through on the TSA pre-check, and, uh, and I was going to go to the gate because we didn't have confirmed seats. So I went up to the gate, confirmed our seats, and came back to wait in security with, for Audrey and Lacey. And they had never flown before. They don't really know. They'd flown once on the way out. They go through the line in security. They get up to the, to the person checking IDs, and Audrey shows the ID. And the guy there says, well, the airline entered your birthday wrong. On your ticket, you have to go out of security line and walk all the way back up to the front of the airport and go back to the gate and start the process all over. So I don't know anything that's going on. We're down there waiting for them. Audrey calls me and says this is going on. And so they go back up, get that fixed, come back through the line. And they, they were able, somebody was helping them get through and go up to the front because at this point we're running close to time. And as they're going through the security check, then they decide that my 12-year-old rosy-cheeked daughter, Lacey, looks like a terrorist. Amen. Yes. 
So they pull her aside in her little 12-year-old lack of flying experience and pat her down in front of the entire airport. And so as a dad, I'm like, if only I had something to throw. <laughs> and I'm watching them and watching her face get all red and she doesn't know what's happening. And, and, uh, and then they decide that Audrey and Lacey both look sus enough, as the kids would say these days suspicious enough that it's time to look through both of their backpacks and so in a very slow methodical way almost as if to let me know she's in charge this woman it was like she was taking things out of the backpack slowly and not looking at the backpack but looking at me the whole time <laughs> I'm in charge I own you and the whole time I mean getting redder and redder and redder as dad, you know, trying to get through the line and they're putting my kids through this. And, you know, the whole time we finally got on the plane and from then on everything was fine, only to find out, you know, they told us there's no way all six of you could fly on this flight. But on that first flight, I counted at least five empty seats that my, that Caitlin and Aaron could have flown in. The second flight was maybe 30 or 40% full. And so redder and redder and redder. So every time the stewardess came down the line and said, sir, put your mask above your nose. I just, you know, one more thing. I, 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 maybe I'm being too transparent tonight. If you didn't know it already, your pastor is human just like you are. And air, nothing brings it out like airlines. But you know, it was an outward temptation. It was an outward test. And I never said anything. I didn't, I didn't do anything that would have hurt my testimony. I, I just moved through it. And, and I had my kids watching anyway. And, and yet those outward tests very often can put us in positions that reveal something about us on the inside. They can put us in a position to, to fail an, a, a test of sin as well. Because an outward test will, will test us and then we'll get to a place where we transition into responding incorrectly and then that's where sin comes in. And in many ways that's what James is dealing with. They were dealing with outward tests and persecution and pressure on the outside but, but then he transitions into dealing with moral testing and testing about sin on the inside because that will come just as much as the outward testing will. It's not uncommon to be tested to sin. Opportunity knocks one, but sin leans on the doorbell. And so James's message last time was twofold. He, he talks about the problem of sin. In verse 13, he says, let no man say when he is tempted, uh, uh, te tempted to sin, is what he's talking about now. Now, let him not say I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. We covered this last time. But we like to blame everybody else for our sin. We like to play the blame game. It started in the Garden of Eden. We like to pass the buck. And uh, we like to say, you know, with a husband, if he has trouble with his anger, he likes to blame his family. A wife who, who has a trouble with maybe discontentment might blame her husband. And a teenager might blame their parents for rebellion. And, uh, an employee might blame their boss for a critical spirit. We, we like to do that. But James makes it clear in verse 14 that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It's nobody else's fault when I sin. The problem is not out there. The problem is right in here. Nobody makes me sin but me. Right. 
The source of temptation is in me. It's right here. It's not, uh, it's not because I inherited some genes from, my, from my, my dad that makes me susceptible to this kind of sin. Or it's not because I was raised in this environment. It's not because of my parents or my past experiences. It's not because of abuses. It's not because of wrong done to me. I sin because of me. The problem with temptation is Jason Jett. I mean, not your problem with temptation. My problem with temptation is Jason Jett. And your problem is you fill in your name. So that's the problem of sin. But there's also a process of, of, of temptation here that, that James gives us. In verse 15, he says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Lust conceives sin, and sin produces death. See, lust is a strong desire that causes us to say, I need that, I want that, I deserve that, or I deserve more than I have. And our feelings cause us to say, boy, I really need that, or I deserve to have that. And immature Christians operate based on feelings over facts. We looked at that last time. There's a battle between how I feel and what I know. And that battle is every day. That battle is multiple times every hour. That battle is multiple times every minute. Uh, see, when, when faced with sin, mature Christians let what I know choose their response for them. But immature Christians let how I feel choose their response for them. Uh, when faced with sin, we, we either say, well, what I know is this, so I choose this. Or how I feel is this, so I choose that route. And this is the same in many questions in our Christian life. When it comes to church attendance, there are some families that still struggle over here and they're saying, well, church attendance is about how I feel. And if that's the case, there will be days like today for me that you don't feel like getting up and coming to church. And if you let how I feel determine your church attendance, then you're going to be an inconsistent church attender. But there are families in this room who a long time ago decided church attendance is a what I know decision. And what I know is that our family needs church and God commands church and we need the fellowship, we need the teaching, we need the exhortation, we need to be edified. So whether or not we feel like it, church is a what I know decision. I mean, there are so many things like this. Serving God, it's a what I know decision. How we raise our children, it's a what I know decision, not how I feel. Because there are days that raising children doesn't make you feel very good. How you deal with your spouse, if you allow it to be a, a how I feel decision instead of a what I know decision, you're going to have trouble. Maturity responds with what I know instead of how I feel. And that's important because sin, how I feel, sin always produces death. If you want to kill your spiritual life, make your decisions based on how I feel instead of what you know. And your spiritual life and your walk with God will, be, will eventually be killed. If you want to kill your marriage, operate based on how I feel rather than what I know. If you want to kill a church, then, then create a church environment that is driven by how church members feel rather than what church members know. We either operate by feelings or we operate by truth. And when we operate by feelings, the, the result is death of something every time. 
There are no exceptions to this. I mean, think about it. David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, nobody was as close to God as David was. And yet when he looked over down that rooftop and he lusted, then he couldn't prevent the effects of, of lust in his life, which was the death of a child. And other, I mean, the, the, the snowball was, was just rolling along in his life because of that decision. Here's a man after God's own heart, and he wasn't an exception. Solomon was the wisest man on earth probably who ever lived and yet his own lust and his desire to marry strange women who didn't serve his God, he could not escape the effects of those decisions even though he was the wisest man on earth. Samson was the strongest man who probably one of the strongest or the strongest who ever lived and Samson wasn't strong enough to punch his way out of the consequences that he faced because of his own lustful decisions. When you operate how you feel instead of with what you know, the death that is produced, you cannot escape it. You won't be an exception to the rule. And as we go through this tonight, then you might start to get a little bit discouraged, you know, saying, well, well, if that's how it works in the battle against sin, sin, then I don't have any hope. But, but there is good news. There is. See, after the problem of sin, which is me, and the process of sin, which is lust and sin and death, there actually is a solution, and it's established on a truth about God. And it's, I've been excited about this truth tonight for, for a few days. Here's the ultimate what I know when it comes to battling sin. Look at verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So the solution for, the, for sin is this. God is always good. And I'll show you how we connect that. You'll, you'll see the connection, hopefully, if I do a good job explaining it. See, James is making a contrast. The first truth that he's presenting in these thoughts is that the product of sin is death. The end of sin is death. And when, when you lust outside of marriage, it kills a relationship. When you operate in anger, it kills our responsibility for love that should define God's disciples. When you live with a selfish spirit, it kills the spirit of servitude that a church ought to be defined by. When a besetting sin in your life will kill your walk with God. It will kill your usefulness for God. Sin always kills something. It always produces death. How I feel will produce the death of something meaningful every single time. That's the first truth that James is presenting in this thought flow. But he contrasts that truth that sin always produces death with, some, with God's goodness in verses 17 and 18. And he says every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. It comes from God. Now just to describe or define these terms, good gift. When he says every good gift, he is, it's not so much the gift itself as it is the way that God gives. If you look at the, the, the words here, the Greek words used for good gift and perfect gift, then you realize they're not exactly the same, although they're very similar. But when he says good gift, he's talking about the act of giving. What he's saying is how God gives is always good. How he gives. His motives are always good when he gives. His methods in giving are always good. Earlier in the chapter, we saw this played out when he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who what? 
who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. So here's how God gives when we need wisdom. He gives more than we could ever possibly need. And he gives in such a way that he doesn't like reprimand us or make us feel guilty for asking for a gift. Because he's that kind of a father. See, God, in, in the way that he gives, when it says every good gift, the way that he gives is always good. It's all, he always gives the right way. He always gives more than enough. He never reprimands us when we ask for something. That's the idea of good gift. God always gives in a way that produces good for us. Always. God is not a gag gift kind of a God. Now, I've gotten gag gifts from people, and I laugh about those things, and, and they're funny. God never does that. Any gift that comes from God, the end of that gift is that you and I will be perfected. Not imperfected in terms of we're sinless, but complete and mature. Every gift he gives us is good for us. That's how God gives. So every good gift, and then he says, and every perfect gift. And this one is more about the gift itself. It perfect means complete. And what he's saying is every gift God gives is enough for me. It's what I need. They're, they're always adequate. They're always capable of accomplishing the purpose they intend. Now, and so to understand this, let's just consider salvation tonight. See, salvation is, in terms of it, it being a good gift, it, it's a good gift in the way that God gave salvation. He gave it in a good way. In that God sacrificially, out of love, gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us. It's a good gift in that God gave it in a way that produced the best for us. His motive for us was, was love. His method in giving was sacrifice. That's how he always gives. He always gives the best way, but he also always gives the best gifts. He gave his own son what God does for us through Jesus Christ in salvation is more than enough. You know, nothing else is needed for spiritual life. You don't have to accept his gift and then go find the pieces that complete his gift. I mean, that's how many people operate when it comes to salvation in this culture. They accept Jesus Christ as part of salvation, but they think I have to fill in the gaps with the things that I'm working toward. I have to go get, I have to be baptized, I've got to do good works, I have to be faithful to church, I have to go, I have to go fill in the gaps that Jesus Christ left with my own efforts. But the Bible doesn't say that God gives almost perfect gifts. No, he says that God gives perfect gifts, they're complete, they do everything we ever needed them to, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of that. There's nothing else needed. Otherwise, on the cross, he would have said, it is almost finished. But he didn't. He said, it is finished. Because his work is enough for us. Salvation is enough for us. God's gifts and, and the, his giving is always done in the best way. And he says in verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And I'd love to spend more time on this, but basically just know that he, the idea is that he transformed us from sinners undeserving of anything good into the first fruits of his creatures. Only an incredible kind of God could take somebody like me and somebody like you and make us a testimony of his grace, a trophy of grace, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that he has done. See, our lives, our lives in salvation 
are the product of what God can produce through the kind of giving that he gives. I mean, he can transform us. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful for the way that he has changed so many lives in this room. We started as nothing, but God's goodness transformed us into works of his grace. You can't look at people like us in a room like this tonight and think, okay, they did that all by themselves. It can only have been done through the grace of God and our response in faith. God's goodness is clear in salvation. His gifts and the way he gives always produce something good. And so James' point then is this. If God, if God was good when it comes to salvation, that means he will always be good in every other gift he gives us. See, he says, these gifts come down from the Father of lights. God produced the sun and the stars and the moon. He created those with the words of his mouth. Those are great gifts. Light is a great gift. And if you think it's not, then have you ever tried to find a keyhole in the dark? Light is a good gift. It's a good thing. It's, it's a blessing. And you appreciate light. But as amazing as the sun is... And as incredible as the moon is when it's full on a clear night, there are times when we can't see the sun. There are, day, there are nights when we don't see the moon. They, they're hidden. And, and James's point is this. God is above even those lights. And some say, well, this is about spiritual light. Okay, well, I'll say that again. Through the spiritual light from God through his word is a blessing. It's something that he, I mean, the fact that he can illuminate truth, eternal truth, and me understand it, and you understand it, that's an incredible gift. And, and yet there are things we may not understand about truth, but God produced it. He's the father of lights. So anything that light is, all the good things about light, God is too, but he's even better than that. See, the idea, he says, but, but even with God, he's the father of lights, but there's no variableness with God. See, the sun sometimes is hidden. The moon sometimes we don't see. There are times when clouds hinders us from seeing the sun. And when the sun's on the backside of the earth and we can't see it at night, there are times when it's hidden. But God is never hidden like that. He's even greater than the lights in the sky. He's greater than the sun. He's greater than the moon. With him there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Uh, what he's saying is that, that the sun, even as great as it is, it starts in one place and it moves across the sky and shadows change as the sun changes. So there may be times where the shadow's on this side of me, other times when the shadow's on this side of me. What he's saying is God is so constant, there's never shadows changing with God. He's so steady, he so never changes, he's so immutable, and he's so unchanging that the shadows with him, there's no change in the shadows. That's how consistent that God is. He is that kind of consistent God. And listen, and this gives us an idea about the kind of gifts that he gives. Because if he never changes, and he's that consistent, and he can give us good gifts in salvation, that means he'll always give us good gifts. Warren Wiersbe said four things about God's goodness. I like the way he described it, so I'm using it tonight. That God only gives good gifts. Luke 11, he said, Jesus said, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall, how much shall your heavenly Father give? Uh, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He only gives good gifts. So that's the first thing Warren Wiersbe said. The second is the way God gives is good. If someone brings you his gift and he throw it at you with a growl and say, here you go. Say, well, that's real special. Thank you. It's like when Brother Samuel was little. I, I love to use these. When he was about this tall, 
One time he came up to me and another guy at the church and he was sucking on a sucker and he obviously didn't like it. And he came up to us and he said, I want you to have it. <laughs> and this guy and I quoted that for about 15 years. We still do, actually. So, and I'm like, well, first of all, you've been sucking on it. I don't want it. Thank you very much. But second of all, you're only giving it to me because you don't like it. But you know, with God, that's never how it works. He never comes up and says, well, this is not my favorite, so you can have it. No, Jesus Christ was his only son, and that's who he gave us. So he, he, God only gives good gifts, and he only gives in the best way, with the best motives. Third, Warren Wearsby said, God gives constantly. Verse 17, that he says, these gifts, they cometh down from the Father of lights. That cometh down is present participle, which means it's continuously happening. It's always present. He's always giving, not just on Sundays. Listen, God doesn't just give you gifts on Sundays. He gives you gifts every day of the week. He doesn't just give you gifts when things are good in your life. He gives you good gifts when things are bad in your life. He gives good, good, good gifts constantly, even when we don't see them, and even when we don't understand them. God gives only good gifts. And the way he gives is good. And he gives constantly. And fourth, where's we said, God does not change. So all of these things about God are always true. If God has ever been good to you in the past, then he'll always only ever be good to you in the future. Because he never changes. He can't be anything but good. And John's, James's message is this. Listen, here's what I know. And just listen. I, listen, James is, I love the way he summarizes it. Here's what I know. And I'm going to read it because I wrote it out. And I was thinking it sounded pretty good in my head. We'll see. I'm about to read it. Okay. Here's what James says. I have a God who always gives gifts that are good. He's already proven himself in the gifts he's given, especially salvation. I also have a God who gives in such a way that he's always only interested in producing something good for me. His gifts are always beneficial. I also have a God that never stops giving good gifts. And I have a God that never changes, no matter what. He's always only interested in producing good in my, in my life. That's what James is saying. And here's the contrast that he's making. He says, unlike sin. See, what does sin always produce in our lives, according to the text? Death. See, death. So here's the contrast. You have on one hand, you have one source of gifts that always leaves us better than he finds us. Gifts that are always good, gifts that perfect me, gifts that mature me, that's what you get from God. Contrast that with what sin produces. It always leaves us worse than it finds us. And while God's gift produces, produces that which grows us, sin's gift produces that which hurts us. And yet we often choose how I feel over what I know. Talk about an inferior choice. You know, that would be like somebody, and I heard this illustration somewhere, but someone comes up to you and says, okay, you give me your $20 bill, and if you don't have a lot of money, that $20 bill means something to you. So they, came up, they come up to you and they say, give me your $20 bill, and I'll give you change for 1000 so, are you doing the math here? So you give me 20 and I'll give you $980 back. And you say, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. But you know what we do? This, and when we're ta talking about the contrast of these two choices, we say, but I don't really want to give up my $20 bill. 
That's the difference between choosing operating based on what I know and based on, I mean, sorry, operating based on how I feel and then based on what I know. Well, how I feel is saying, I want to keep my $20. Well, what I know is 980 is a lot, bit, a lot more than 20, so I'll operate over here. And yet many times we have these truths in front of us and we choose to operate how I feel. And it always, always produces inferior results to what I know. So we must choose to operate based on what we know. And what James's emphasis is right here is this. Here's what I know. God is good. God is good. And to bring us to this principle, I just want you to think about the life of Joseph. You say, well, that seems like a strange connection. Except we're talking about lust and we're talking about temptation. And is there a clearer example of somebody that was tempted uh, to sin in God's word than Joseph? Not, I mean, not many. Joseph in, in Genesis 39 was faced with temptation, with great moral temptation. He was a young man placed in Potiphar's house and he, was, he had access to and authority over everything except one thing in the house. What was it? Potiphar's wife. So when she came after him, he responded incredibly as a young man. And, and he's basically what he, say, what he said to her was, I'm just going to read it, Genesis 39. I'm just going to summarize it. If you want to turn over there, that'd be fine. Genesis 39, and we'll read his, his response because it really is good. Genesis 39, verses 8 and 9. Let's start in verse 7. Here's Joseph's temptation. He, and it came to pass, verse 7, after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me, but he refused, and I want you to pay attention to why. And said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wadeth or knoweth not what is with me in the house. Like I, he has left me so in charge that he doesn't even know what's happening in the house. He hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You know what Joseph starts by saying? He says, I have authority here. I have influence here. I have responsibility here. I make decisions. I'm trusted. Uh, I'm making a difference in, in Potiphar's house. I have privileges. I have complete access to everything except you. How then? How could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, what a profound statement by a young man. He didn't just say, boy, there's one thing I really wish I had and focus on the one thing he doesn't have access to. No, he didn't focus on what he lacked. He focused on what he had. He said, I have privileges and I have authority. I make decisions. I'm a slave, but I'm trusted. God has been good to me. Jacob or Joseph wasn't thinking, I really wish I had her. No, he looked at the goodness of God and he said, I have an amazing father who has given me so many blessings. He's rewarded me beyond compare. He's provided for me when it looked hopeless. He protects me. He spared me from death. And when it looked hopeless, he gave me blessings beyond understanding. I may not have everything, but look at what I do have. I have enough. And in that moment, how I feel would have been devastating for Joseph. How I feel will make us focus on what we lack, but what I know will make us focus on what we have. 
And too many of God's people fall into sin because they're more focused on what they're missing or what they're lacking that they lose sight of what they already have. And Satan is really good at this. He tries to convince us that our Father is holding out on us. Do not err, my, my brethren, my beloved brethren. Basically, God's not holding out on you. Satan used that tactic with Adam and Eve. He came along and he says, Yeah, hath God said, um, don't you know that if God really loved you, he'd let you enjoy any fruit? If God really loved you, he'd let you be just like him. He wanted her to question God's motives. That's how he came to Eve. But if Adam and Eve would have been more focused, and listen, pay attention because this is the transition. Okay, If Adam and Eve would have been more focused on what they already had rather than what they lacked, they likely would have never taken the fruit. If they would have just looked around in the garden and said, we have a garden full of fruit. We have everything we could possibly need. I, we have everything to sustain us. Uh, I have a, it's a perfect environment with perfect weather. All the food, all the resources we could ever ask for. There's no disease. That lion over there, he's not eating me. That's a positive. It's just life in paradise. If they would have just stopped and looked around at how good God had been to them, they would have probably been able to overcome that temptation. But instead, they started focusing on what they didn't have, that one fruit. They had a whole garden in front of them. And all they were thinking about in that moment was, well, yeah, but we don't have that. And so how does that apply? Well, do you have eternal life? I mean, think about what you do have. Do you have a God that provides for you? And if you want to say amen, sure, that's, that'd be fine. Do you, have a, do you have a God that loves you? Did he give you light? I mean, physical and spiritual light? Did he send his son to die in your place? Has he ever been good to you or healed you or shown you grace when you didn't deserve it? Well, every good thing and every lasting thing you have in your life came from God. Every gift that he gives produces something good for you. That's what we know. And yet it's amazing how many of us will say, I know those things, but boy, how I feel. And we still choose what's over here because we're not focused on what we have. We're focused on what we lack. And boy, we really want that too. And we lose sight of the goodness of God and what we have because of it. And when you focus on what you do have, you'll be far less inclined to chase after what you don't have. That's how these things connect. Every child of God needs to come to this point in their lives and say this, God's gifts, they're good enough for me. God's gifts are good enough for me. Is there temptation in our lives? Well, always. But I'm not focused on what I lack. I'm focused on what I have. And that new job, yeah, it might mean more money, but pursuing it when it could cost me more uh, my church attendance or pursuing it when it could cause me to have to move my family to some other place and lose a church like this and friends like these, no. These are gifts from God and they're good enough for me, so I'll just keep plugging along where I'm at. That, uh, that new car, I mean, who doesn't want a new car? And I say, I could use an upgrade, but, but I'm not sure that a second job or more debt is what my family needs. So for now, God's gifts are good enough for me. A new house, I wish. 
I'd love to check every box, but God has blessed us with a roof over our head and with what we have, and maybe we should focus on what we have rather than what we're lacking and let God lead in the timing because I don't love everything about this house, but it's a gift from God and it's good enough for me. And that relationship, boy, it's appealing. And somebody single might be here. You say, well, that relationship, I really wish that I had that relationship. It's appealing. I really desire that. But if God doesn't lead me to pursue that and his timing doesn't match up with mine, he's given me lots of blessings even in my singlehood. So rather than become impatient and rather than grow bitter and rather than be angry that things aren't working out the way that I want, I'm just going to say, no, God's gifts are good enough for me. And this is true in those areas, but it's also true in sin. You know, my spouse is a gift from God. Why would I risk my marriage for a novel, fleeting relationship with somebody else? My spouse is a gift from God, and that's good enough for me. It's easy to get focused on what others have and, and wish, well, I, had, I wish I had what they had, but, but envy will kill my relationship with other people and it'll kill my relationship with God. So I'm choosing to focus on what I have because God gave it to me and that's good enough for me. Purity is a gift from God. I, I know you can find anything you want to look at online or on your phone or whatever it is these days. But we need some Christians, and especially men, in churches like this that say, no, my relationship with my spouse and my own purity are gifts from God, and they're good enough for me, so I'm choosing to live over here. And maybe you're not all that content because of something that you wish that you had, but maybe you've lost sight of what you do have. And rather than focus on what you want, consider what you already have, and just be willing to say, God, your gifts are good enough for me. How I feel makes me focus on what I want, but what I know makes me focus on what I have, and I'm choosing to operate based on what I know. And what do I know? Well, according to James, I know this, God is good, and his gifts are good enough for me. I know it's difficult. I know life can be hard. I know temptations come, and we all have those things that if we could just have them, we think that will complete me. A relationship, a possession, a talent, a baby, more money, fewer bills, a different job, a different office at my job, sitting next to a different person in my office at a different job. If I just had that, it would complete me. So we pursue, but what we don't realize is that from this very passage in James, it states that God is the author of every good and perfect gift. Meaning God is the one that gives us gifts that actually do complete us. So for us to chase these things on our own is to deny him the ability to work in us and mature us the way that he sees fit. Which is the only way that actually will work in us and mature us and perfect us in the way that we need it. So let him do it. And until these things do come, maybe they never do. Just assume that everything you have is what the Lord knows you need. And if he gives you every and and gives and he and everything he gives is good and he gives constantly and he never changes, that means that he'll give you what you need when you need it. God is good. 
and his gifts are good enough for me. This will help me be content with what I have, but it will also help me resist the temptation to sin because in, in sin, I'm continually reaching for those things that I don't have. And if we would just park over here and say, but God, here's what I do have, we would find ourselves a lot more content there and a lot less chasing would be going on for the things that we don't have. Listen, you have a choice. And how you feel will make you focus on what you wish you had and it will leave you discontent every time. But what you know will make you focus on what you do have. It would help you realize that this very important statement is true for me. God is good. And his gifts, they're good enough for me. The next time you're tempted to sin, say that. The next time there's a temptation to chase after a relationship you shouldn't have, say that. The next time that you're envious of somebody else's position or somebody else's possession or somebody else's talent or somebody else's ministry, say that to yourself. God is good and his gifts are good enough for me. So I'm going to stay right here. And I'm going to focus on what you've given me. And I'm going to be thankful for what you've given me. And if you never give me anything else, you've given me everything I need. Let's say it. Ready? God is good. And his gifts are good enough for me. Say it again. Ready? God is good. And his gifts are good enough for me. One more time for good measure. God is good. And his gifts are good enough for me. We need to drill that into our heads. And tomorrow, when you wake up and you're tempted, say it. Tomorrow, when you're tempted to not pursue something wrong or even something sinful, but just something different, say that to yourself. You want to resist temptation and you want to help yourself when when the external tests come, memorize and use that phrase every day, all the time. Rehearsing God's goodness will arm you in the battle to resist temptation. They go hand in hand. Never personally really made the connection until this week. But when I did, boy, I'm telling you, it changed my perspective. God is good and his gifts are good enough for me. Let's stand together. Every head bowed, eyes closed. We'll have a verse of invitation. And I don't know what you've been chasing, thinking that it will complete you. But I'm just telling you. That whatever you're chasing, whatever you think is good to complete what you need in your life, it's not if it doesn't come from God. We need to simply trust God and his gifts and recognize that they're good enough for us. I don't know where you're lacking. I don't know where your discontentment might be. I don't know where your disappointment might be. I don't know where your temptation might be. But I do believe that this principle, this phrase tonight, it may not get a vast response this evening, but I'm telling you, this kind of truth can change us tomorrow. This kind of truth is ammunition to resist temptation because we're rehearsing God's goodness. How has God been good to you in your life? When's the last time you just simply stopped and said, God, here are all the ways you've been good to me. I need to go over these a lot more. Because I've been thinking, boy, I really need that or I wish I had that. And no, what I have is good enough for me because I came from you. Let's just ask God to work in our hearts this evening. Father, we thank you for the truth. We pray that you'd help us to respond in a way that pleases you. And I pray that you'd help us to arm ourselves with this principle. And as we go about tomorrow, go about our week, 
that we would say these things to ourselves and remind us that, God, you are good and your gifts are good enough for us. Help us, Lord, to use this to arm ourselves in the battle against temptation. Lord, work as you will. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.